0: This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised.
1: How did their families cope with that? How did they somehow survive? How did they work through that trauma, the grief? It's one thing to lose a relative to an illness or sickness. It's another to, to lose a relative to one of the biggest crime sprees in the nation's history at the time.
0: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones, on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words, is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Most of us know the story of serial killer John Wayne Gacy. I frankly don't want to know more about Gacy, but I do want to hear about his victims. So I had a great discussion with author David Nelson, who focuses on the boys who were Gacy's victims in his book, Boys Enter the House, the Victims of John Wayne Gacy and the Lives They Left Behind. Let's talk about the obligatory summary of John Wayne Gacy for the very few people who have not become aware of what happened with this story, the number of victims he had in the time period and in the location. Just give us sort of the, the short spiel, and then we can jump into who these boys were.
1: So John Wayne Gacy was a businessman living in the suburbs of the Chicago area in a place called Norwood Park, which is an unincorporated area of Cook County. It's very close to the airport, O'Hare, so that's where most of the action takes place in terms of the murders. John Wayne Gacy was a precinct captain for the Democratic Party. Um, He was a businessman who owned his own company called PDM, which stands for Painting, Decorating and Maintenance. He did all sorts of jobs all over the Midwest, locally here in the Chicago area, but also uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Um, He did a job in Albion, Michigan, which is where I went to college. Um, Ohio, Indiana, Minnesota, all over the place. He was a gregarious individual. He loved to socialize. He loved to host parties, themed parties at his little bungalow in Norwood Park. He was also, most famously, a clown. Um, He liked to dress as a clown. I think everybody has that image of him standing outside of his house, dressed in that awful outfit with the real jagged makeup, He performed mostly for birthday parties and actually at children's hospitals as well, which adds a real dark (laughs) kind of flavor to him as a person. But this was really his way of being social, putting on a a different mask that wasn't himself, and continuing to uh, entertain people. During all this time during his life, he was, of course, concealing a secret. He claimed he was bisexual, But he was picking up young men anywhere from the age of 14 to 22, 23, and bringing them to his home for either a sexual encounter or a drug deal or to potentially work for him at his company. He employed a lot of young teenage boys at these construction sites. Um, A lot of them lived with him at times, worked out of his house where his office was as well. Over the course of um, the 1970s, from 1972 to 1978, he killed 33 boys officially, though I suspect that number is about 34 to 35-ish in that range. Hmm.
0: Why do you suspect that? Well, first of all, there is
1: his his initial confession, which I know people are not as willing to trust the serial killer at his word. But during that confession, I do think he was quite truthful. I think there's sort of a Catholic... Kind of confessional uh, thing going on there at the end. He's finally unburdening himself with this huge secret that he's been carrying all these years. But also a lot of those facts are verified by what was found at the house, what was found in the crawl space where he buried the boys and also what investigators uncovered as well. He does claim that he dumped several boys into the river. Once the crawl space was too full, he started throwing these boys um, off a bridge into the Des Plaines river. Four bodies, I should say, were found, but he claimed he threw a fifth that might have fallen onto a barge and been carried off. I think there was probably a fifth body there. There's recordings of him talking to his lawyers uh, in 1979 after he's been caught. And he talks about leaving uh, a young man's body out in the woods during the winter. And this boy, he was sort of very specific about him. He had a military background. And so I think to give that anecdote, I take that at its word. I think there was probably another body that was dumped in the woods. There was some discussion from some of the, the law enforcement at the time about finding this body, but they never conclusively linked it. I can't officially link it myself, obviously, but I do think there was probably a 35th body that was left in the woods at some point.
0: Well, who should we start with? Because there are an awful lot of victims. Whose family did you approach first?
1: Frank Landigan or Dale Landigan, as he was known, his family came first in the form of his sister, Denise Landigan. She and I had a call at the start of this research project, which is what it was to start with. And she had been waiting so long to talk about her brother. And she hadn't had a chance to talk about it back then. And he was not as represented in the and the articles and the stories um that followed. He wasn't, you know, when they made a movie, he wasn't featured in it. His story wasn't told. She had been waiting for a moment to finally tell this story. And she told me everything. Uh, she told me about not just what he had gone through and, how they went through his murder, but she told me about the abuse at the hands of her father, hmm. um, how he sort of ruled their home and, and really made it a difficult place to live, not just for her and her sisters, but for Dale himself. Um, it was not a happy home. And I remember ending that interview and feeling like, what am I getting into <laughs> a little bit? Hmm. But also realizing and and feeling a little bit reinvigorated and like, this is what I should be doing. This is the angle I should be telling. So... From then on out, Denise and I became good friends. <laughs> um, I know you, they say you should probably, you know, remain neutral as you're reporting. It's hard to remain neutral in a story like this when there's so much grief, so much fallout from this case. You want the best for the individuals that you're making friends with and, and interviewing. And, and when they have something outside of this murder happen in their lives, you feel bad for them. You want them to be happy. And so it's hard not to empathize with them and become close to them. So that was the first family I really began this journey with. And Dale was almost the gatekeeper to the rest of the story in some ways.
0: Well, let's talk about Dale and how eventually his life intersected with that of John Wayne Gacy. From Denise's point of view, what did she say? How did this whole thing start? Everything was
1: moving along with the family up until the divorce between uh, Denise and Dale's parents. And the family broke up and basically kind of became involved in their own lives. And the kids at that point were a little bit older, so they were a little bit more self-sufficient. But Uptown, being the area that it was, was very free, very open. It was the 1970s, so this kind of danger that Gacy posed was not at the forefront of everyone's mind. Hanging out on the streets with your friends, running off, going on adventures, that was kind of the norm, especially in this area of Uptown. And so Denise and Dale lived on the streets for quite a bit of time. They came home to their mother's home or their father's home here and there when they needed to. Um, But Denise kind of remembers more of them both being on the street. Um, And Denise did lose contact with her brother here and there. And so a lot of those, those holes in his life were filled in by some additional friends that I met along the way as well and kind of offered some insight about what Dale was up to. Dale had a string of jobs that didn't go very well. He worked at a Long John Silver's for a while. He worked at a movie theater. One other book records that he worked at a hotel briefly. He was sort of a little bit wayward. Um, He did not attend high school. There is a little bit of a record of him at Sen High listed in the back of the index, but there's no accompanying photograph or anything like that. From then on out, his time within chicago public schools is basically at an end so um he does have frequent run-ins with the law um there's stories of him dealing drugs um there's also stories of him working as a male hustler which for a young man in the 1970s on the north side that was probably something you did to make money to get food Um, you started hustling you started to meet with hustlers down at clark and in the Newtown neighborhood, which is what it was called at the time. So that's probably what led him to run into John Wayne Gacy, that connection, but also his need for a job. One of his friends did recall Dale talking about talking to a businessman or a contractor that was offering him a job. And so that was almost certainly John Wayne Gacy, because not long after that, Dale disappeared. And Dale's body was one of the four discovered in the Des River.
0: And do we know where in the line Dale was one of the beginning, I'm assuming? Or was it one of the end? Dale was actually at the end. He,
1: was, uh, he disappeared right before Thanksgiving 1978. His body was found before the Gacy case broke. So for a few weeks, he was just a random homicide victim. He hadn't even been found In Cook County or in Chicago, he was found way out in a marina, um, just outside of a marina floating in the Des Plaines River. An investigation ensues, his body is examined, but no one makes a link later until Gacy actually confesses to his murder. And he's linked through also uh, a bond slip, which is found in John Wayne Gacy's home. The day or two before he disappeared, Uh, Dale got into um, a physical altercation with his girlfriend at the time. Um, He was arrested, and then he was released a day or two after that. So that bond slip um, was actually found in Gacy's home, which linked him to this series of crimes. So at that point, then, police realized that there are bodies beyond what's inside this crawl space. There are bodies potentially in the rivers as well.
0: So Denise and Dale come from an abusive household from the father. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what Denise and her mother must have felt, but what is the father's reaction? I'm curious about the murder of his son, especially as all of the details start to spill out about this man and how many people he killed and who he was targeting, vulnerable people.
1: So we don't know a whole lot about how Francisco Sr., um, who was from originally from the Philippines, how he really reacted to this. Obviously, it was a shock. Francisco Sr. was the last to see Dale alive that we know of. He was the last reported. And so he testified to that effect. Having to go before the jury, having to sit in a courtroom with John Wayne Gacy, I'm sure was a huge burden for him. But by that time, Denise really didn't want to have a whole lot to do with her father and continued not to have a lot to do with him from then on out. Knowing that her father was abusive, sexually abusive, towards her and her sisters when they were children, she did her best to keep her own children away from her father. Hmm. Um, and there's a, a time where she also lost her, her husband, who was probably her ex-husband at that time. Um, he passed away at a young age, and she remembers her father coming to the funeral and trying to sit next to her kids. And she intentionally put her older son in between them to kind of prevent him from getting anywhere near her daughter. So Uh she really didn't want anything to do with him after the family broke up, but especially after Dale was killed.
0: And all the publicity around this story, how did this change Denise's life? Was it significant?
1: For Denise, it was very hard. After the wake, she had a baby. She had her second child, She was pregnant at the time that she last saw her brother. Um, She was pregnant as the case was breaking. I believe she talks about being in the hospital after having delivered this baby and seeing this on the news, but not quite putting her brother's murder Mm. in connection with John Wayne Gacy. She did attend some of the court proceedings and she wanted to throw a shoe at John Wayne Gacy. It was kind of like, the only thing she could really think about doing. She couldn't be in there and she had to leave. And after that, she really left Chicago in, in, in general. She kind of went around, she was in Florida, she was in Michigan. Um, she struggled, she struggled with drugs, she struggled with personal relationships, but she found her way back to Chicago, which I think is like really the, the highlight for me in her story is that she was sitting on a park bench one day in, in Southfield, Michigan, which is ironically where I was born. And she just decided to get her life together. She had to go back and be with her kids. She had to stop using drugs. She had to just try and rebuild her life. And so it's been a process. I mean, she still is haunted by her brother's death. This book was helpful for her. It was slightly cathartic, I think, or like to think. She herself has has said as much. But you don't recover from something like this fully. You never get over it. You might make a little bit of peace with it, But it will still be there in the background of your head, for sure.
0: How did Dale's story lead you to the stories of other young men or boys who were victims of John Wayne Gacy? Who was next for you?
1: One story I really wanted to tell was the story of Billy Carroll, who was about the same age as Dale, but he was killed earlier on. He was killed in June of 1976, and 1976 was the biggest year of of murders for John Wayne Gacy. The most boys were killed during that period and buried in the crawl space. I'm still trying to figure out why Billy Carroll resonated and resonates with me still. I think perhaps it was because his brother also died after he was murdered. His brother was killed almost a month after the trial ended. Mm. So Billy Carroll's parents lost both of their kids. But at the same time, they also had this really, really rough, home dynamic. There was not a lot of money. There was not a lot of food. Later in my research, I discovered that they had a sister, a sister that almost none of his friends even knew about. I think one friend knew about it, but they had a sister who was learning impaired or learning disabled, and they could not care for her. And they um, they gave her up sometime in the 1960s. So this family was really, aside from the fact that they had to deal with this national murder story. This family had a ton of hardships and was really down at their luck living in the impoverished neighborhood of Uptown just like Dale was. So his story was one I wanted to tell, but it was one I knew that it was going to be really hard to tell. There was no living relatives. If anything, it was going to be cousins. Many of the cousins didn't know him. So then I had to find friends. How do you find friends for a young man who didn't attend school who lived mostly on the streets, whose family is all deceased. How do you find that? And somehow I ended up finding a third cousin of his and who was actually quite good friends with him. And then from there, there was other names that led to more names. And I was able to paint at least a fragment of this 16-year-old boy's life. And so he was next for me. But I wouldn't say that he was next in terms of like completion. He was something that was... I found pieces of along the way until that final draft. I was able to, like, kind of put him together as best as I could.
0: Well, what do we know about Billy's interaction with John Wayne Gacy and how all of that unfolded? And how was he discovered?
1: So Billy Carroll was also working as a male hustler, um, sex worker at Clark and Diversity. His friends knew this. Billy attempted to put his friends in contact with other men. He was sort of facilitating these sexual encounters with young boys and older men. I did not think I was going to be able to learn about this. I did not think I was going to find firsthand accounts of it, because obviously there's a lot of shame with that. But also there's an exposure to AIDS and HIV and and danger among the johns but i was able somehow to find at least two individuals who could attest to the fact that they met with johns at clark and diversity with billy carroll billy carroll was doing that because uh he needed money he was from a very very poor family and he needed money but he also liked to buy sports equipment he had a pair of ice skates Boxing gloves. He wanted to be able to afford that stuff because he took care of his body. He was really trying to work out and trying to become fit because you had to be strong. You had to be fit to survive on the streets of Uptown. There were a lot of gangs that young men, you know, kind of collided with. And there was a lot of danger on Uptown that you had to survive against. And money helped him facilitate that strength and gain that strength by working out, by having the best sports equipment, that sort of thing. So, that need for money drove him to the place where you could find quite a bit of money. And that was Clark and Diversity, also Bug House Square, which is right in front of the Newberry Library here in Chicago. And so those were sort of two of the hotspots for, for sex work at that time, for meeting with male older male gentlemen who would drive around in their car and then haggle with the young men over the price of any kind of encounter, really. So that's what led him there. Um, and he was discovered in the crawl space as well. Um, His body was there, Hmm. um, sort of on top of several others. There was sort of a, a singular grave there that contained, I think, four remains of other young men, some of whom have still not been identified. So that is the story of Billy Carroll.
0: So now you're talking about, so far, two victims that you've learned more about. And really, it just sounds like You know, these are people who come from very difficult backgrounds who are vulnerable. I mean, we hear this all the time with the victims of some serial killers is the vulnerability of the victims.
1: Yeah. And that's just sort of one segment of this set of victims. The other set is the gay men who were also victims. There were a couple um, young men who were gay who were struggling with their sexuality or fully out as best you could be in nineteen in the late 1970s. They met with John Wayne Gacy other, either by sex work themselves or just by happenstance being at a gay bar where John Wayne Gacy was, was frequenting. And of course, there's not going to be a lot of investigation <laughs> into a young gay man's disappearance. There wasn't much investigation into the disappearance of a straight young man back in the day, especially a teenager. They were all runaways. And so now you add the layer of homosexuality to this. Chicago police are not going to look into this.
0: So I'm curious about your next road after you've sort of addressed Dale and Billy. Where do you head next? And how many families or friends of victims did you end up talking to for your book? Total. Only answer the
1: first part. Where I headed next then was Newtown which today we call Boys Town or North Allstead, that has been the LGBTQ plus epicenter for a long time. It was in the 70s, more gay men, um, but there were quite a few lesbian bars as well. But back then it was called Newtown. And so I wanted to learn about that neighborhood. I wanted to learn about what it was like there during the time. But I knew that was going to be hard because I knew that what happens after the 1970s for gay Americans is the 1980s. And that's a dark time, as we all know, with the AIDS crisis. So I was worried about finding enough witnesses to help me fill in the blanks for that. And I was, I was able to find men who lived their lives walking those streets and and heading to the bars and making friends and, and living a, a proud life back then for as best you could in the 1970s. So That was sort of my next area, especially because so many of the boys had ties to Clark and Diversity, which was in Newtown, one of the hotspots for sex work at the time. So I knew I had to kind of paint a portrait of that area as well. So that's where I headed next. And then your other question about how many victims, I think there were at least 12 to 15, I've lost count at this point, families who had some sort of representative speak to me, whether that was a sibling. Hmm. Um, In some cases, obviously siblings are gone. So like in the case of Billy Carroll, it was mostly friends that spoke with me. So I would say at least 12 to 15 of the victims. And then I spoke with the friends and family of two boys who are still, still missing as of 2023. Who were never linked to John Wayne Gacy, but fit the victimology
0: of them. After Craig, who is the next Gacy victim, and who do you talk to? Aside from those two boys, who else is a, a really good representative of who John Gacy was targeting?
1: So the next person I would probably say is Billy Kindred. And Billy Kindred's story fulfilled sort of a, a wish of mine that I wanted a love story within this book. I wanted a coming-of-age love story. Billy Kindred and Mary Jane Piper were a young couple. They met when Mary Jane and her friend were hitchhiking on Irving Park Road one summer afternoon. And Billy and his friend Danny happened to be the ones that picked them up. Then on out, Billy and Mary Jane were basically inseparable and had plans eventually to get married. That was an aspect of this coming-of-age story that I was seeing that I wanted to fit as a piece of puzzle into the overall mosaic. I wanted that love story. I thought that was really representative of being young and being having this this coming of age story cut short. Mary Jane and I had a lot of long conversations that led to conversations with some of his friends that led to conversations with his sister and painted a picture of a a young man really wanting to prove himself, not just to those around him and not just to Mary Jane, but to himself as well. He was down on himself about not having prospects. He didn't finish school. He didn't have a whole lot of job opportunities or anything like that, but he wanted to make a life for himself and make a life for Mary Jane, especially if they were going to get married, which is what they intended to do. Billy Kindred represents that vulnerability of needing that next move, needing that next opportunity. And here comes John Wayne Gacy with an opportunity he can't pass up, which is the promise of a job. Billy Kindred calls Mary Jane the night before he disappears or the night he disappears and tells her he's met this, this man who's going to give him a job. And that's the last time she ever hears from him. And then sort of as a side note, what people don't really know is that there was a witness to Billy Kindred's murder. His friend was with him that evening and went with Billy Kindred to John Wayne Gacy's house. And this young man left the apartment to get cigarettes or beer and came back and actually saw John Wayne Gacy huddled over Billy Kendred, strangling him. Now, this person was supposed to be a witness for the prosecution, but because there were some questions about his suitability as a witness, they withdrew him at the last minute. But this is the only individual who's actually ever publicly claimed that we know of officially who witnessed one of John Wayne Gacy's murders.
0: that suitability because of drug use?
1: Yes. And the fact that he was also hustling, also sort of dealing in drugs, that made him less believable on the witness stand. And the prosecution at that point, they wanted the family members, they wanted the mothers, they wanted the sisters mm. to really be the character witnesses for these individuals and the last time, and, and talk about the last time they saw them. So this sort of broke the pattern of relatives and loved ones, but also called into question his story. So they ended up withdrawing this, this witness, which is not widely known.
0: I have sort of a question that popped in my head. I hate focusing on John Wayne Gacy, but I don't know this. Why, if there were boys found, you know, in the crawl space and everything is connected to him, why did he go to trial? Why not just take a plea deal and get death penalty off the table or whatever? Why go through all of this for him? You know, I don't know
1: if I know the answer to that question. I think he thought he could get away with it on the question of insanity and get a nice, cushy little spot in some asylum somewhere. I think he thought that there was a way out, which is very delusional but also sort of indicative of who Gacy was. He always, he talked himself out of shit all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, before the murders were found, he he had abducted several different boys and assaulted them, beat them up. Police tied their cases to him and he still talked his way out. He was never charged. Um, When he lived in Iowa, he did serve some time, but he got out of that for good behavior too. So he's always gotten out of it because he's, braggadocious he can talk his way out he schmoozes people he's got ties to local police they're invited to his parties and that sort of thing and you know he goes to the local moose club and makes friends with whoever's there so he probably thought he could talk his way out and prove some sort of semblance of innocence and get away with it and he continued doing that after he was sentenced to death That's where the truth becomes quite blurry for John Wayne Gacy. Um, There's a famous interview he did, I think it was with CBS, where he's trying to point the blame at others. Um, He's trying to absolve himself of these murders. He says he he has knowledge of some of them, but not all of them. And so he starts to paint this very exotic picture of innocence to try and beat the death penalty at that point. And I will note, there is... Just the slightest bit of truth to that, I do think some of the teenage employees that were living with him, I think they have some knowledge of some of these murders. There are business records that prove John Wayne Gacy was not in town during one of the murders or traveling in and around another murder, which would have made it hard for him to both kill a boy and then dispose of the body. Also, he was not in the best shape. Um, Over the course of the 1970s, he also claimed he had a heart condition. So getting down into this very narrow crawl space and then pull a body down in there with him, then dig a hole and then cover it up, he couldn't necessarily do all that. Some of the boys did dig trenches for what they thought were pipes, but I don't think they could have not known Hmm. in some cases. I think they had to have known something.
0: Wow. Well, let's move away from Gacy and back to the victim's Who was the next person that we're talking to now? Who was the youngest person that you learned about?
1: Samuel Stapleton was 14 when he Uh. went missing in May 1976, just a month before Billy Carroll. And what's odd about this is that I started realizing as I was investigating or learning about Samuel Stapleton that a lot of these boys actually did know each other.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, they weren't, you know, the closest of friends or the best of friends, but Billy Carroll knew Samuel Stapleton and Randy Raffet, and Samuel Stapleton and Randy Raffet probably went missing together. This was one of Gacy's quote-unquote double murders that he committed. So they all knew each other. I should note that Dale Landigan, Billy Carroll, and Billy Kindred all went to the same school, where Randy Rafet and Samuel Stapleton also went as well. So that's five victims tied to one school. They were all part of this one place, which is really sad to think about that one man can pluck five different kids out of the same general area and get away with it for a number of years. So Samuel Stapleton was, was next. I talked to all three of his siblings, and they spoke about Sam going missing and what Sam was like, Sam's interactions with the gangs of the area, how he himself had to prove himself as the toughest kid in Uptown so that he could walk the streets safely. And so his siblings could walk the streets safely. All they had to do was mention his name if they got into some trouble, and kids would probably scatter or break away. They didn't want to mess with anyone connected with Samuel Stapleton. Wow. And his friend Randy Rafat, who disappeared with him, also had a reputation for being tough and for winning fights in, in Uptown. So they sort of hung together.
0: This does not seem like a pair of boys who are ideal victims for an out of shape John Wayne Gacy. So why target these two boys? Were Randy and Samuel the same age? Were they both 14?
1: Samuel Stapleton was 14 at the time and Randy Ruffet was 15 at the time. So just a year difference.
0: Are they both from troubled homes? Do they have a similar upbringing?
1: Yes. Their family unit is intact for the most part, but both of them are living on the edge of poverty. The Ruffet family, there is a little bit of physical violence in that family. The Stapleton family, not as much, except among the siblings and general fights, but they are living in Uptown, which is an impoverished area. Both families are from Appalachia, Stapleton family goes back to Ohio, where they were very, very poor, living in a, in a one-story shack um, with outdoor plumbing. And then they came to Uptown, and it was sort of the same type of story. And same with the Ruffettes. They were a little bit more well-off in Lex- Lexington, Kentucky, where they came from. But here in Uptown, they also lived on the edge of poverty.
0: So what happens the day that Samuel and Randy are together and they encounter John Wayne Gacy? Set up that whole scenario for me. These two tough kids who are used to dealing with shady people on the street, who are used to fighting and to threatening and to, you know, just sort of being kids who didn't put up with a whole lot. What makes them John Wayne Gacy victims? So their
1: days, their final day, both of them are pretty innocuous. For Samuel Stapleton, he goes to see his sister who lives just around the corner from the family home and on her own. And he eats cookies and milk with her as any other kid would do. And they talk a little bit about the future. They talk a little bit about his new job. He's working at a a pizza parlor. He's awaiting his first paycheck. It's everyday young man things. And somewhere between his walk home from his sister's to his family's, He disappears. For Randy Raffett, he comes home from the dentist that day and he has a new cap on his teeth. He shows it to his mother and his grandmother and then heads out with really no destination intended. Uh, But somewhere that evening, him and Samuel Stapleton meet up and then they meet up with John Wayne Gacy. What I suspect is that both these young men were in need of money and jobs. Uh, Obviously, Samuel Stapleton had a job, but Gacy's offers were sometimes too good to refuse because he offered a lot of money. He was paying a lot more than a pizza parlor in Uptown would have paid. And so there was that. But then there was also probably a promise of drugs. John Wayne Gacy had access to marijuana, but also access to prescription drugs. He was frequently renovating pharmacies across the Midwest, and he himself admitted to pilfering a lot of the drugs that were within these pharmacies. So he had access to a lot of stuff. And for a young man who's maybe a bit impressionable, this older man comes along promising money, promising drugs, promising whatever, they might go along with it. And at some point, you know, these two boys were very tough, very strong, very well built for their age. Somehow he manages to subdue them. And that's where That's where it becomes a little bit of a gray area for me. Like, how does he manage to do that? Obviously, there's handcuffs and possibly chloroform, that sort of thing. But it just, it does skew a little bit towards disbelief that he could manage to kill two young teenage boys in the course of the same evening.
0: And where are these two boys found eventually?
1: So both of these boys are found in the crawl space, not far from one another.
0: And this must have been just absolutely devastating for their families. I mean, it must have been terrible for all of these families. What I think people don't
1: realize is that these kids weren't just murdered and then found. It was, in the case of Samuel Stapleton and Randy Ruffet, it was three more years before his family, their families, had any kind of answers. Mm. So they had to live with the rumors coming in that Sam was seen over here, or Randy was seen over here, or he's alive there. They had to leave with that little tease of hope every year until... Till all of a sudden news breaks that bodies have been found in this house out near the airport. But even then, that's not necessarily... The police don't just show up at your door and say, oh yeah, we found your son. There's the process of identification with it, which in those days is mostly dental or circumstantial stuff, like if there's jewelry or anything like that. Right. And for Samuel Stapleton's family, they didn't find out then until almost the full year after the case broke. He wasn't officially identified until November 1979. So that's when they're finally informed. They essentially almost waited over three years to find out an answer. And one of the key clues that allowed them to identify Samuel Stapleton was he had a bracelet on his arm that was actually welded around his arm. So it couldn't come off. Uh So he died with that on his arm. And that was something his parents knew they had. And that was almost the the linchpin into realizing, yes, this is their son, Sam. He's been
0: found. Do you think that because of the sheer number of victims, at least 33, that they all sort of get lost? feels like once you've hit 33, how would you, unless the media really focuses in on each case— how would you get to know any of the victims with that many people and that many stories? They must just become one story, one big story.
1: You know, what's odd about this is that right as this case is breaking, right around the time just before it, Jonestown is happening too, where you have 900 mm. that die at the hands of this cult, essentially. And how do you paint the individual portraits of that? And I don't think that happened back in the time, in the, in the day for, this, for the Gacy case. There was no individual victim that really emerged except probably rob peace who was the last victim and rob peace was from Desplaines. he was what the media is going to refer to as the all-american boy he's a boy scout he's a good student he's a he's a young 15 year old boy working at a pharmacy and that's the story that people are going to gravitate to. That's the one that the media is going to lead with. And so he becomes sort of the representative of the Gacy case and the Gacy victims. It's more of the suburban kids. And there are a few of these suburban kids that actually become sort of the face of the case. Whereas the Uptown boys, they get a little bit jettisoned off to the side, which is unfortunate. There are articles where the families are interviewed. There are news reports. Billy Kindred's mom was interviewed at the courthouse, but... That gets lost. Even Rob Peace gets lost, too, because people want to know about the clown. People want to know, how did this guy do it? What did he do? Is he going to be found guilty or is he going to be found insane? That's what the media figured people wanted to hear about and what people probably did want to hear about back in the day. This was a new type of crime to them. This was not uh, Richard Speck or the Boston Strangler. This was the everyday guy next door living on your street throwing a Hawaiian luau party and he's giving you a roast pig and underneath his dining room is the body of a young man. So that's what these papers lead with. And that's what people I think probably want to hear about back then too.
0: Yeah, you used an interesting word at the beginning of this interview, which was gregarious. He was described as gregarious. And that is what has scared people for generations. Mm -hmm. That person, your next door neighbor, who seems totally normal, who has watched over your kids when you run to the store, who, you know, you would say, Oh, you should go on a date with my sister. That is the terrifying person. It is not the Richard Speck. So the people you look at and go, oh, something's going on with that guy. It's the person who is unsuspecting. So I think, you know, that, that is part of the fascination with John Wayne Gacy, but. What I love about your book is really are you our victim first, and we need more of that in this space. In the true crime space, we need more putting the victim up front and putting the killer back. Doesn't mean ignoring the killer because it's important and that story is important. But to me, what's more important is how we ended up here and what can we learn from these stories not in a victim-shaming way, because we don't do that, but in a way where we just say, gosh, there's a vulnerability here that is systemic. It shows us how systemic the problems are that we have in society for the boys who fell victim to him, the ones from Uptown specifically.
1: Yeah, I think... I think if just given the chance to hear these stories, someone's going to find something that resonates with them. They're going to f- resonate with the love story between Billy Kendred and Mary Jane Piper. They're going to resonate with Sam Stapleton's desire to find a job and his excitement for that very first paycheck. They're going to resonate with those individual little stories in a way that's going to bring these victims back to life and steal the focus back from them. It's not to say that there isn't anything more we can probably say about John Wayne Gacy, but he's also had his time in the sun. I think it's these victims that really form a mosaic of what it means to be American.
0: If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.